You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As we think about our time together in Matthew 17, I'm reminded of the idea of getting a sneak peek. There's a lot of things in life that we would like to get a sneak peek at, and some things we actually do, right? I mean, think about it. When women get pregnant, due to the amazing technology of ultrasound technology, Many mothers choose to get a sneak peek at their child, and the technology is amazing. It's not only the ability to identify the gender, if the mother would choose to do that, but also just any sort of other distinct features about the baby boy or baby girl. It's fun in that regards, but it's not just in that category. Children love giving, getting hints of any kinds of early views or ideas of what they might get for their birthday or for Christmas presents. People like watching movie trailers. I know that I do. When I go to a movie, I enjoy making sure I get there early enough because I get to watch all those mini-movies known as trailers of all the movies that have not yet come out. Recently, there's been a string of trailers in the Marvel Studios series. How many different ways can the world be saved? I don't know. But it's seemingly endless with all kinds of new characters being introduced to us. Employees love seeing what their new work building will look like that they have been told they're going to be moving into from the maybe small, confined cubicle or outdated space into the new place. I know so many people were interested, not even employees, of what the new Apple building was going to look like, this seemingly otherworldly architecturally designed space. Homeowners love looking at what their house is going to look like if it's new construction. An architect has typically drawn up plans, and there's been a general contractor in the mix, and so they want a chance to see it on paper, but eventually come in person and see it, even if it's not completed. They can't wait to finally live in it and enjoy this new place to themselves. Well, all of these ideas and more, the truth is the same for us as Christians. We love to get sneak peeks. I mean, quite honestly, that's why so many Christians are interested in Revelation. We're not so terribly concerned about, or maybe they're even aware of, the book of Galatians or Ephesians, but Revelation, man, that holds our attention. Like, can we talk about the bowls for a second? Can we, can we talk about the horns for a second? What, what exactly is going on with these animals? I, I have a few questions I'd love for you to answer those for me. I'd like to know a sneak peek of what it's going to look like in the future. Revelation holds the attention of many Christians. Well, today, we get a sneak peek, and it comes from no one less than Jesus himself. A sneak peek in on what we see later on in the book of Revelation. Because in Matthew's writing, in his record of Jesus' life here in Matthew 17, Matthew shows us the record of what Jesus did with a very select few. Not the crowd, and not even all the disciples, just small group of three that would get a sneak peek to know about Jesus' glory. 
an opportunity to get a sneak peek at his deity that they had seen seemingly in shadow ways, right? I mean, how else can you explain the unbelievable miracles? How else can you explain the teaching with such authority? How else can you explain the exercising of demons? It's not as if they say they have not already heard about it and in some ways seen representations of it, but we're about to have the, the curtain pulled back. We're about to be front and center what they have never to this point otherwise seen before. And tonight, in Matthew 17, we'll read of the spectacular. First of all, in verses 1 to 7, I want us to see the confirmation of Jesus' deity. The confirmation of Jesus' deity. Follow along as I read to you verses 1 to 7. Matthew writes, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The first part here of our text for this evening from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, which will be all the verses we're in, is the confirmation of Jesus' deity. Now, you notice they're very interested in the very beginning part of this. We only have four parties involved, four individuals who are part of this conversation. It's Jesus, it's Peter, it's James, and it's John. And we see that this relationship he has with them is not unique to this one incident. He's had other times with them, and he'll have other times with them in the future as well. This comes up earlier in chapter 10. It will happen again in chapter 26. Now, in this idea of the confirmation of Jesus' deity, there's four things. First of all, what they see. What they see. You go back to verses 1 through 3, and you see this sort of unpack here for you. First of all, what they see is the appearance of of God's Messiah. The appearance of God's Messiah. You, you see this here in the text. He, referring to Jesus, was transfigured before them. It's difficult to try to capture in, well, in this case, English language, in the original writing, Greek language, in any human language, it's difficult to try to capture in vocabulary what is happening here with the Son of God. We know in Philippians chapter 2 that he revealed himself in human form in the likeness of man in which he was born, that he might become like us so that he might be a sacrifice for us. And so we think of Jesus' earthly ministry, we primarily, almost exclusively in his first coming, think of him in his human expression, his normalcy, if you will, outside of his miraculous teachings and works. But here is a moment in which we see, Matthew says, he was transfigured. This is this idea of crossing over something. He has gone from one state 
to another state. And it's not like he just, you know, simply did like an X-Men moment here and sort of appear as some sort of Marvel superhero. He became like they had never seen before. It says specifically his face and his clothing shine like the noonday sun. Shine like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Matthew's capturing what Mark also talks about. Luke also talks about the significance of Jesus' representation of himself. This passage of Jesus appearing is very similar to what we see, what's like interacting with God before. In fact, earlier in Exodus chapter 34, back in the time of Moses, when Moses has come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and they've got the whole golden calf episode that takes place, and the tablets are smashed, and God then gives him another set of tablets, and that second time when he goes up, he is appearing from having become down the mountain with God. Moses' face is shining so radiantly, not because he is God, but because he has been with God, that they actually ask Moses, can you, um, would you mind uh, covering up? It's hard to even look at you when you talk. This idea of the radiance of the glory of God is not unique to Exodus 34. It's not unique to Matthew 17. It comes up later in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him. It says in a bright light, he appears to him. Later on in the book of Revelation, it says and describes the heaven will be radiant and the glory of God will be its light, specifically referring to Jesus the Christ. There's a moment here where Jesus is transfigured and his face shone like the sun. It's significant. Significant because of the reality of what it meant for them to be in the full glorified representation of who Jesus is, the Son of God. It's not only what they see as the appearance of God's Messiah, we also see the arrival of God's messengers as if that wasn't kind of mind-blowing enough. Look at verse 3. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah. And somehow in this exchange, they know who this is. They don't have to like ID them. They're not sort of interacting with them. We know in the book of Luke that they're actually starting to have a conversation, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, because Luke makes reference to it. And Peter apparently knows who they are because Peter says, hey, should we like build something for you and for Moses and Elijah? Now, the question we have to maybe ask, for those of you who are not familiar with the scriptures, is like, why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not, I don't know, Isaiah? Why not Ezekiel? And why not Abraham? Or why not David? Why Moses and why Elijah? Why do we have to have these two guys? Because, friends, it was understood in Old Testament prophecy, Moses represented the law of God, and Elijah represented all the prophecies of God. So to have them be here is basically a physical validation of the deity of Jesus, as if his glory itself was not remarkable. Here we have to the witness stand of this tabernacle moment, if you will, Moses and Elijah saying, he is God. You think about that kind of creditation today in judicial system, when someone is being accused of being something, the question is, is there enough evidence to support that? Can enough evidence be per per permitted, be presented for that to be shown to be true? The case here, we think about this, 
It's not only Jesus' divine glory being seen, it's also the presentation of these complimentary witnesses, Moses and Elijah. So that's, first of all, what they see. But now, secondly, what do they say? Look at verse 4. Look what Peter says. Lord, it is good that we are here. And some debate, is he making a statement or is he asking a question? Like, is it good that we're here? Question mark. Or is it good? It's good that we're here. It's not quite clear, except we do know what Peter wants to do. He's like, hey, we can build tents here. Now, you have to understand this word tent. You're like, really? You got a, you got a temple like Jerusalem, and you're trying to set up a pop-up shop tent for Jesus? Can we show him some more respect? You'd be misunderstanding what Peter is saying here. Peter is referencing the reality of what he knew from Old Testament Scripture, which is this idea of God tabernacling with us, God being present with us, that this is holy ground, and that this should be a place where worship is offered. And so he's like, listen, this is not a mere normal experience. This isn't like, you know, someone just turn up to sunlight right now. This is a reality of divinity is present, and we have Moses and Elijah confirming by their very attendance of Jesus' deity, what shall we do? And his response is he wants to worship. But what's crazy, as if that wasn't enough, it's not only what they see, it's not only what they say, it's also what they hear. Look at verse 5. While he's still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. If you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just tell you of an earlier episode where this took place. This very scenario took place, not in the fullness of Jesus' deity, but in a voice speaking from heaven. It's back in Matthew chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, I'll just represent it to you. The significance of what's being said is that Jesus' baptism... John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, and it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and we saw like the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, coming to meet him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As if it wasn't already an over-the-top experience with Moses and Elijah, now God the Father is the one speaking. God the Father is the one present, endorsing the reality and the identity of God the Son. So what do they do? Fourthly here, it's a confirmation of Jesus' deity. What do they do? Well, you can see it in verses 6 through 7 and 8. It says there, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, I have to ask a question that maybe I'm the only one in the room thinking and no one else is, or maybe someone else in the room is thinking with me, you didn't decide you want to fall down before this moment? Like at what point were like, the, are the previous incidents were like rather casual? Oh, here goes Jesus again, the old face shining like the sun. Oh, Moses and Elijah, we're wondering where the two of you were. At what point do you feel like, okay, normal, normal, okay, abnormal, fall on your face in worship? I can't explain that except to say it's so overwhelming to them as God the Father is communicating to them that they basically collapse and fall on their faces, and it says there, we're terrified. Now, for those of you who have grown up around Pentecostal or charismatic theological traditions, some of you may be very close to that even today, 
Let me just ask you to consider this by way of biblical cross-reference. A lot of times it's common, and I have very good friends in these sort of theological traditions, it's very common to have such individuals describe about how God has appeared to them. I could think of one famous author that spoke about how um, you know, Jesus would appear to him when he was shaving, talk to him in the morning, like a normal conversation. I'm talking to you, Jesus is talking to him. And other friends have said, oh yeah, I mean, God has appeared to me, there I was on a walk, and this place, and God appeared to me, and he spoke to me. What always amazes me is not the claim, but what's left out in the response. What amazes me is that people don't then say, and then I fell over and almost died. And then I almost drove my car into the wall because I was amazed that Jesus was sitting in the car next to me. And then I collapsed and I almost cut myself while I was shaving because the Son of God was next to me and I was so shocked. Instead, it's like it was like a normal experience. Friends, I just want to be very clear. When you find God revealing himself, uh, to use a biblical term in the Old Testament, it's known as a theophany. It's the appearance of deity to people in person. They did not go, huh, I didn't expect to see you here. This is great. Can't wait to tell my friends. They basically thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Because why? Because they understood no one can see God and live. To be in the presence of God and not feel the gravity of his deity and the response to normalcy really kind of begs the question, anybody claiming that they're seeing deity, like, I, I don't know what you saw, and I'm not here to kind of judge. I'm just saying, you didn't see God. I just, I just assure you, you did not see God. What you see here in the text and what, how they respond is they're so overwhelmed, it says they were terrified. Now, terrified is this like superlative term that means of overwhelming fear. Overwhelming fear. Like that they are overwhelmed. In fact, it's so overwhelming, I want you to see what Jesus does because he actually shows his compassion kindness to them. He says they fell on their face, they're terrified. But then verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them. It's like, what is that? That's kind of a weird phrase, right? What does that mean, touch them? We're like playing like, you know, like, Harry Potter moment now, he's like, you do, you touch it? What, is this, what is this touching him thing he's doing? Friends, the, the way that Matthew's trying to write this is, he basically comes and he shows compassion to them because he can understand how overwhelming this is. And this term he uses about touching them is basically he lifts them up and says, it's going to be okay. He comforts them is the idea. He's comforting them because they're so overwhelmed. They're so overwhelmed. This is the confirmation of Jesus' deity, which takes us to the second part of this text, verses 8 to 13. <laughs> you can imagine what this would have been like, the conversation about Jesus' deity. The confirmation, now let's talk about it, the conversation. Let's go back to the text, verse 8. That's where I left off. When they lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus only, like Moses and Elijah are gone. And, and his radiant clothes has stopped. His radiant face like the sun has stopped. There's no more comments made by the Father. Verse 9, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. He put a gag order on them. Until when? Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
The disciples asked him, well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they had a confirmation of Jesus' deity. Now they're having a conversation about Jesus' deity. And this is where he gets into, we can see here in verse 9, which is this clear command. They're coming on the mountain. And you have to kind of imagine, you're like, oh my goodness, wait till Andrew finds us out. Right? I mean, wait till Philip. Philip's never going to believe me. And Jesus is like, just so we're clear, you can't go tell anybody. I mean, like, anything happens to anybody, we're like, we're telling everybody. And Jesus basically says, I mean, outside of his disciples, because presumably Matthew knew about it. After the resurrection, clarity of the timing of that's not quite clear. But the point is, he tells them they cannot tell. And the reason why he doesn't want to tell them, because he wants the timing of the revelation of his deity to be not be manufactured or to be manipulated by men, but according to the will of God. He instructs him clearly what they're to do and not to do and when to do it. They can tell, but not until there's the resurrection, which they don't quite understand exactly what that means, which we'll see in the coming weeks. So then there's this confusion. The whole confusion is, wait a minute, tell me again what's happening, what's happening. I thought we're supposed to wait for Elijah. We've been taught since we were children, growing up in our synagogues, Elijah's the one we're supposed to wait for. And Elijah hasn't come, so why are you here? Like, I feel like the things are out of order. And Jesus basically says, you're right, Elijah is supposed to come first. And I'm telling you, Elijah's already come. And the things that they did with Elijah, they're going to do with the Son of Man, which is back to his title again, his reoccurring phrase in which he says, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus adds this clarification to their confusion. He wants them to understand what's happening. And this goes back to what we read in Matthew chapter 11 when the disciples of John the Baptist came. And then Matthew chapter 14 when John the Baptist is beheaded and his disciples come and tell Jesus. Jesus is now basically saying in Matthew 17, just like John the Baptist suffered, so will the Son of Man, referring to himself, suffer as well. Just like he was poorly treated, though he was doing the work of God, so I will be poorly treated as well. This event was a taste of the kingdom, but the disciples were confused. I mean, Elijah's supposed to come, right? Jesus says, Elijah is supposed to come, and he's already come in the person of John the Baptist. And instead of receiving John the Baptist as the religious leaders were supposed to, instead they rejected him. And Jesus says, and they're going to reject me as well. You have to understand how significant this is. Peter, James, and John never forgot this moment the rest of their life. And quite honestly, I don't think you and I would either. In fact, later on when John is writing the Gospel of John, he references this scenario He's referencing in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, We have seen his glory with which would have been a reference to Jesus' transfiguration. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, 
We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, friends, let's be clear here what's happening in the text. What's clear in the text is that we are to come into this text and not go like, okay, new Bible fact about Jesus, new witness being presented. Now, what should I do about this? And this, I think, sometimes can be a mistake Christians make, like myself, or even pastors like myself, teaching Christians like yourself. What do you do with something like this? What is the application? What lessons do we apply? I mean, God wants you to reveal to your friends your hidden talent that you've been keeping to yourself. God wants you to let that out. You laugh, but that stuff is cheesy but common. Oh, you know what? You should try to get to the mountaintop and see if God will talk to you there. It's on the mountaintops of life that God speaks to us the most. Cheesy application number two. Or, you know what? You should be like Jesus. You should get a tan and wear white clothes. It's not what we're supposed to take away from this. The primary goal, what we're seeing here, is to see it and to be amazed by what's being revealed in it. It is just repeatedly being demonstrated over and over. Now, friends, for those of you who are here who are not Christians, I don't know if this is your first time or maybe the first time in a long time, you have familiarity with Christianity or no familiarity with Christianity, but I want you to be very clear. God repeatedly presents his son as different than any way anyone would naturally expect. And he does that not so we could just be impressed with him, but because we have to make a decision regarding him. What will we do in light of the revelation about him? We just say, well, that's historically intriguing. Or we say, okay, that's life and worldview changing. Because if he is who he says he is, and who he showed himself to be, then I have to make some significant changes in why I am living the way I am living, or thinking the way I am thinking, whether or not I want to surrender my life to him or not. Do I want to know him as a savior, which he offers himself, because of my repentance of my sin and surrendering of my life to him, trusting him, or do I want to know him as my judge, the one who will come back in all of his revealed glory, on the white horse and judge the world according to his righteousness. That's a serious consideration for us. A couple of months ago, I was at a gathering of some pastors and some other guests that were there. One individual there was named Patrick Forrester. Not a household name, but it's a name I won't forget anytime soon. Patrick Forrester is a retired colonel in the United States Army who also served as a pilot in the Army, particularly doing test flights and aviation, until he transferred over and became an astronaut for NASA, as if life wasn't impressive enough already. And he flew in three different space shuttle launches and spent time on the International Space Station. And then he became the chief astronaut who will be in charge of assigning all other future flights to other astronauts. I mean, it's like, like mic drop and mic drop moment. And he was talking about what it was like in space to be on a spacewalk where you have to go outside the space station and like do repairs. And he said, yeah, he said, the space station is just like your house. It always needs work. There's just maintenance needed all the time. 
He says, but unlike your house, which stands still, the space station is moving at about 17,000 miles per hour. It rotates around the earth in about 93 minutes. Just like mind-blowing. And so you can imagine all the questions, right? The question is like, okay, did you ever lose any tools? The answer to that, by the way, is yes, they did. Okay, question number two. Did you ever almost run out of oxygen and die in space? The answer to that one, concerningly, was yes as well. I mean, you, you can imagine when you hear a story like this, how captivating it is. And here's the deal. Forrester's life is not my life. It's his story to tell. He was there and I was not. But I'm captivated by what he's seen. I'm overwhelmed by what he knows, what he's experienced. Is it something wrong for us as Christians if we're more captivated by the astronaut's story of space than by Matthew, Peter, James, or John's story of Jesus revealing himself in his glory? Do we have the same sense of intrigue and desire to be amazed by what's being revealed? Now, some of us might think, you know what? I'm intrigued. In fact, I'm so intrigued, I feel like if I could see Jesus like that today, that would be like a miracle pill to my unbelieving temptations. Or better yet, I have good friends. I have dear family members that I, I wish so desperately God would appear to them like he did appear to James Bond. Because I can assure you, if God would do that, game over. Arguments ended. No more disobedience. No more rebellion. They would surrender. If, if only God would do that. If you thought that way, I have thought that way as well. But let me tell you what Peter says about that way of thinking. Turn in 2 Peter chapter 1. Like, where is 2 Peter? Well, if you go to the very end of your Bible, that's Revelation. Turn to the left from Revelation. You get Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, and then you get 2 Peter. It's almost to the very end of your Bible. Small little letter, three chapters, but for our purposes, in light of this text this evening, look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1. As Peter's talking about wanting to recall to them, remind them of their forgiveness in Christ, he says this in verse 12, I want to remind you of these qualities, I want you to recall these things, verse 15, but now for our purposes tonight, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 verse 21. This is Peter, the same person who's like, hey, we're going to build temples, we're going to build tents for Peter, for Jesus, James, and uh, Moses, and Elijah. Now look at what he writes years later. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, I mean, just made up stories, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And Peter's like, I've been there. I've done that. Here's what I want you to see what he says next. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word. The Bible you're holding in your hand. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no, no Bible verse, comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What I want you to see, friends, when he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, talking about false teachers that's going to come and try to make you twist and believe other things. He's basically saying, hey, even more impressive than Jesus showing up on your front porch, Jesus coming to you by your bedside, Jesus showing up to your, even greater than that is the Bible you hold in your hand. That there is no greater revelation God could give you or give you to give your friend than the scriptures. I mean, just think about that with me. Peter, uh, not, excuse me, not Peter, Jesus himself later on when he's telling in Luke chapter 16 the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and he's wanting, uh, you know, the Abraham to send somebody back to tell his brothers that if they saw somebody come back from the dead. And Jesus says in his parable that Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses or the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. So friend, if there's somebody here who is saying, I will believe in Jesus only if one more condition upon my faith, you are playing a dangerous game. Because what we see here is the reality that God has given us something even greater than this revelation of his son. As glorious as that is, he's given us the revelation of it in his word. And the question is, how are you and I going to respond? The last point I want to make to you, just by implication, that I think is rich for us devotionally. May I remind you, for those of you who know and those of you who do not, let me just tell you briefly. Peter has had a bit of a roller coaster relationship with Jesus. Prior to these two chapters, but I'm just going to highlight these two chapters. I mean, in Matthew chapter 16, for those of you who remember, Peter, when he's asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. You're like, Dude, that's like awesome. Only to have a few verses later when they're having another conversation another time. And Jesus is telling about how he's going to be killed, and the third day he's going to be raised. Peter takes him inside and says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Only to have Jesus say back to him in a rebuking fashion, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Okay, sometimes parents, when their kids get in trouble, they use this technique called timeout. We can debate the success or failure of that exercise later. But the point is, the idea is you want to take the child and set them aside to kind of think about what they've done. I mean, I'm just going to guess, like if Peter gets a get behind me, Satan, he could probably use some time out. He could probably use a, hey, you might want to think about what you've done. 
What's so stunning is that in chapter 17, six days later, and not because time out has ended for Peter, that's just simply a reference to this idea, answering what happens in an earlier verse of truly I say to you, someone standing here today that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus includes Peter, James, and John in this opportunity for revelation of his deity. What does that tell us? That tells us later on in Matthew 18 when Jesus teaches about forgiveness, there's not a lesson Jesus teaches that he's not first practicing. And I say this by way of consideration for you and I today. Jesus' example of how he treated others when they failed him so greatly becomes an example to you and I as well. I mean, Peter has gone from an overwhelming opportunity declaring the the greatness of Jesus to now being accused of being a pawn of Satan And Jesus does not withhold himself from him as a disciple and instead gives himself to him and then gives him this opportunity which you'd later say, what a glorious opportunity it was. I think the chance, the reality for you and I is when someone crosses us so many times, when someone disappoints us so many times, when someone lets us down so many times, we will then seemingly feel like we can justify ways in which we withhold ourselves from them and no longer be in our good graces. But Peter doesn't do that. Excuse me, Jesus doesn't do that with Peter. He extends himself to him again and again and again. So friends, make no mistake about it. We come to Matthew 17, we need to stop and stare and be amazed at the glory of God. We need also be amazed at the word of God. And we should also be amazed at the patience and the forgiveness of God. These are the lessons we can learn here this evening. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.